It's late on a Saturday night, and you've just walked out of the room of a patient who you're admitting for pneumonia, and you think, let me go back in there and put the oxygen up some more. It couldn't hurt, right? Meanwhile, you scan the board and think, surgery has not called me back for that patient with mild appendicitis. Meanwhile, an ambulance arrives with a patient with a history of seizures who's had yet another seizure, and the nurses say, do you want a head CT? The answer to these and many other questions will be found in this next episode of EM ToxCast. Exciting. <laughs> so welcome to EM ToxCast. Uh, we have... Uh, three great articles. Uh, you know, our goal here on this episode is to flip our journal club a little bit. And as always, I'm joined by Dr. Edward Ramaska. Hello. Uh, and Ernie Lieber, uh, who is our program director and our former program director. And they are uh, emergency medicine literature connoisseurs. Uh, they uh, digest the literature and uh, make witty and, and uh, insightful remarks about it. And my role is to make sure all the knobs are pointing in the right direction on the sound box here. <laughs> and to bleep out any unwanted... Yes, yes. <laughs> to edit Ed's, Ed's uh, un, undesirable comments. <laughs> Uh, but so uh, we have three articles. Um, uh, we're going to be reviewing appendicitis. We're going to be taking a look at oxygen therapy. And we're going to be looking at emergency department neuroimaging for seizures. So our first article is about appendicitis. Yeah, so the first article is uh, one that just came out in JAMA in uh, September of 2018. It's entitled five-year follow-up of antibiotic therapy for uncomplicated acute appendicitis in the APPAC randomized clinical trial. I guess that's APAC? I don't know what that stands for. It's appendicitis acutus. Is that is what, what it is? is? Yeah, yeah. I, I knew you would know because that, that's <laughs> your thing. You. I love that. I know, I know. That, that's why I didn't bother to look it up because I figured you would know. <laughs> acuta. Appendicitis acuta. There right. you go. <laughs> yeah. So it's an acute appendicitis versus an ugly one is what you're saying. <laughs> so this is a study from Finland. It's actually a follow-up of a study they did three – they published three years ago. This is now the um, – they did a one-year follow-up initially, and we actually did that article at our journal club three years ago. That's right, we did. And now there's a um, five-year follow-up on it. So they wanted to determine the late recurrence rate of appendicitis after antibiotic therapy for the treatment of uncomplicated acute appendicitis. So again, this was the APAC trials we said. It was a multi-center, open-label, randomized clinical trial. Um, it was conducted in six different Finnish hospitals over about 32 months or so. It involved like 530 patients, and they were all between 18 years old and 60 years old. All of them had CAT scans done, and if you had uncomplicated acute appendicitis, that is, you didn't have an, append an appendicolith, which is easy for me to say, <laughs> a perforation, an abscess, or a suspicion of a tumor, or you didn't have peritonitis, or you yes. weren't seriously ill or anything like that, they randomized you. And you either went to get an appendectomy, just as always, they did open appendectomies back then, right. or they gave them antibiotic therapy. They gave them a 10-day course of antibiotics. And they used actually fairly um, high guns initially. They used irtapenem 
for three days, IV, right. and then switch them to levofloxacin and metronidazole for seven days. And they left a decision for appendectomy to the surgeon, and they just followed these patients up. They either had clinic visits, they called them, they did record searches, and they wanted to see what was going on. So <clears throat> in the original study, um, the five-year recurrence rate, or I'm sorry, the one-year recurrence rate was 27%. So, um, so they, the, the one-year recurrence rate for antibiotic-only treatment of appendicitis was 27%. 27%. Right. And if you actually look at the article, there's a, a figure two, there's a Kaplan-Meier graph, right. right, that shows, usually we're used to seeing these for survival. This is actually done for um, appendectomy recurrence. Recurrence, but, yeah. You know, at two years then, the cumulative incidence of recurrence was up to 34%. And then at five years, it was up to 39%. And that was a total of 100 patients out of the original 530 patients they had. Mm -hmm. um, they note that they had no appendicitis in seven patients who underwent appendectomy, and they talk about that later, about how they, they did not have pre-specified criteria. So it was left up to the surgeon. If the surgeon wasn't that you know sanguine about the whole protocol, right. and they just was like, oh, I'm not going to do this. this yeah, patient. you're going to get worse. I'm going to. Uh, yeah, it, it yeah. looks like you're getting worse. I'm just going to cut you. You know, maybe the rate wouldn't be as high as it was. Um, th the hospital length of stay was three days in both groups. Um, mainly, that's because they had to be. IV antibiotics for three days was in their protocol, so they had no choice there. Mm -hmm. Although the median sick time was was interesting. It was 22 days after appendectomy, and it was half of that, only 11 days with the antibiotic group. Mm -hmm. um, so it really looks like this is an interesting thing to do when you have somebody who has acute, uncomplicated appendicitis. Um, some limitations. They did note, you know, the study really wasn't powered to... Um, look at complications after appendectomy or antibiotic therapy. They used open appendectomy rather than laparoscopic. I think most of the time people get laparoscopics now. Right. And they, as I mentioned, they used a very aggressive antibiotic regime. Right, right. Which they may change in the future. But otherwise, this is an interesting study that maybe we can um, have a little shared decision-making with patients about what we want to do with their uh, appendix. Yeah, we can give them options, you know. Before it was like, well, too bad. Here's the bad news. You're going to the operating room. Um, I felt that my take on this study uh, was was twofold. One of them was that the, the Kaplan-Meier graph didn't exactly flatten out at five years completely. Uh, and if you have your first bout of appendicitis when you're 15, uh, you know, there's a very good chance for the rest of your life you might be at risk for having uh, appendicitis again. So I guess the five-year follow-up was practical. But what was interesting to me was that it kept rising pretty much two, three, four, five years. It's still on the rise. So one wonders if down the road that may uh, end up being, you know, 20-year follow-up, you're going to find some recurrence. Uh, the flip side is is that if you have about a half, you know, or a slightly better than fifty percent chance of not needing surgery, just taking antibiotics, yeah, you might, yeah that's the shared decision making <laughs> part. Um, yeah, I do like to have that option. I think even I think about myself or my kids. If I had that option, say you can go, you know, no surgery, um, you know, it might come back within five years. You have this chance of it coming back. I think I'd probably go with that if. Uh, if uh, people were that progressive, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing I think is that the inclusion and exclusion <laughs> criteria really make this mild appendicitis because 
I have a hard time remembering the last appendicitis patient that I didn't think had some peritonitis, you know, and it's almost the, uh, the basis of my diagnosis. Maybe somebody who just only had mild right lower quadrant pain and aha on the CAT scan, we discover appendicitis. Some of those cases were, some of those patients are patients that we would never have even diagnosed as appendicitis. Mm-hmm. We said, come back tomorrow, we'll check your abdomen. And uh, we were just talking about that at uh, yeah. at M M&M and M last right. time about how yeah that you know we used to do that in the past and maybe we should consider doing that again because the risk of cat scanning people you know there's radiation risk but now you throw this into the mix that well if you just have mild appendicitis though we can just start you on your antibiotics <laughs> rather than waiting until it ruptures and then you have to have surgery done right or you know is there a continuum where you can say these patients need nothing. No antibiotics, and these patients should get antibiotics, and these patients should get surgery. It is interesting that you know an appendicolith was something that they felt, oh, that had to come out, and that's probably the chance of reobstructing in some way, yeah. shape, or form. When I was a medical student, I can remember the surgery attending saying, "I have to come in at four in the morning to do an appendicitis." Um, but when the appendicitis happens at 11 o'clock in the morning, the, the OR tells me I can't do it till 5, till the schedule's finished. <laughs> right. So, you know, the practical, the practical of what we actually do and what we think we're doing, what we say we're doing, is often quite a bit different. And nowadays, I think surgery is, is it's not, a, you know, like whoosh, up to the OR you go. So it's great that they studied yeah. this. And I do agree that... Uh, uh, we'll see if the surgeons agree with this and start offering a, you yeah. know, uh, antibiotics so to folks. The next question is, when your patient has right lower quadrant pain and you're thinking it's appendicitis and you're ordering the CAT scan, are you going to start antibiotics or are you going to wait for the CAT scan to come back and say, yes, it definitely is antibiotics? Well, I'll wait for the CAT scan to come back. And if there is appendicitis, I will probably go ahead and start antibiotics, although I won't start ertapenem. I can, I can almost guarantee you that. It's probably not going to be my first choice. But uh, in consultation with the surgeon and discussing uh, with the, top, the operative timing, I think I probably would go ahead and start some antibiotics, yeah. just knowing that that's, one, you know, might as well get going down one of two paths. Yeah, I think that's a change in, the, you know, because in the past you would just say, oh, you have appendicitis. Surgical, surgeon. surgical disease, right? Yes, yeah. you're going to the surgeon, you don't, you know. Yeah, I wonder how far this idea is going to go. You know, pretty soon is appendicitis not going to be a surgical disease anymore where the surgeons say, call me if it gets worse. You know, give them the antibiotics. I'll see them in the outpatient. Put them on the medicine service and call me if it gets worse. Then I'll take it. I didn't think of that. Put them on the medicine service. I like that. Yes. I I can see that happening now, Arnie. Yes. Absolutely right. Right. Exactly. I I like how they did include the sick leave in uh, in kind of their outcomes, you know. So I guess this was in Finland? In Finland. Finland. It was, Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe they care They care more about people missing work in Finland, I guess. Um, but, you know, it was an extra 11 days of, of missed work. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 well, that's certainly that's, big significant. for somebody yeah. who's going yeah. to miss work. I mean, because 22 days, you're missing, you know, basically three weeks of uh, yeah, three weeks of work that yeah. you're out. Whereas this way, you're only missing 11 days. Mm. I used to dream of getting appendicitis when I was an intern, <laughs> just walking around the wards with an IV pole taking a break while all my fellow residents would work. You know, sometimes I worry about you. (laughs) I can remember being in the ICU going like, wouldn't it be great to have appendicitis? Anything to get a couple days off. 21 21 day recovery is just exactly what I need. There you go. (laughs) 
Oh, you well. better be careful. One of our residents may get appendicitis <laughs> now, Rich. And what are you going to say to them when they come to you? And yeah. you're like, hey, well, you got two choices. You can get antibiotics and go back to work right. sooner, or you can go to, the, go to the operating room and get three weeks off. Talk about shared decision making. Here you go. <laughs> All right. That's awesome. So let's a little talk, a bit, uh, talk a little bit about uh, liberal versus conservative oxygen therapy. Uh, Ernie, you tackled this gigantic uh, statistical bomb called uh, the meta-analysis of this uh, IOTA. Yes. Uh, so I guess, I guess it's the IOTA trial, yeah. right? IOTA. What does that stand so for? I think it's just, just what it means is just a little bit, right? IOTA is just oh, a little okay. bit of something. Oh, well done. Oh, it's, not a, it's, mean, it's not a... Um, yeah, that you really only need a little <coughs> bit of oxygen. Oh, I okay. okay. I so, so yeah, this, so this study was in the Lancet in April of this year. Uh, mortality and morbidity in acutely ill adults treated with liberal versus conservative oxygen therapy. Uh, it was a systematic review and meta-analysis. Uh, this was uh, Chu et al. And uh, the authors from Canada, New Zealand, Krakow. Um, so, uh, you know, it's something we see all the time. You kind of set up the, the premise there with the patient who had a pneumonia or cranking up the oxygen on. Right. So we see, and this was acutely ill patients that they wanted to look at. And it's kind of been, you know, standard in emergency medicine. You have a sick patient. It's the ABCs, IV, O2 monitor. O2 is always part of that, you know, when right. you're setting up your safety net. Uh, and there's been studies <clears throat> done recently over the past couple of years, oxygen in acute MI, oxygen in the ICU, stroke oxygen study, where they're saying, okay, maybe this oxygen is not the best thing or is not uh, you know, good for morbidity and mortality. Right. So the author set out here to take a look at all these studies. So they did a systematic review and meta-analysis of all the usual databases, Medline, Embase, HealthStar, and the others where they uh, picked out the randomized controlled trials that compared liberal versus conservative oxygen therapy in these acutely ill adults. Um, and just to set the baseline here, the, the median baseline uh, pulse ox saturation in the liberal arm was 96.4%. So they're saying before any oxygen, the baseline sat in all these six pa sick patients was 96.4%. Mm. That's important. Uh, yeah. So the, the, the big the, the three big outcomes that they were really looking at were the uh, the main outcomes were mortality, and that was mortality in the hospital, mortality at 30 days, and then mortality at the longest follow-up. They then looked at morbidity, which they defined as disability, the longest follow-up, risk of hospital-acquired uh, pneumonia, any hospital-acquired infection, and then length of stay in the hospital. Uh, they took out patients who were less than 18, patients that were pregnant, patients on ECMO, and patients uh, getting hyperbarics, which seems pretty obvious. Uh, and then uh, patients also they took out with only respiratory or psychiatric disease and patients who were admitted with ele for elective surgeries. Gotcha. Um, they defined acutely ill as requiring non-elective hospital admission. They defined critically ill as admitted to a critical care unit. Uh, so what were the results that they saw or what they look at? So altogether, they picked out 25 randomized controlled trials, a total of 16,037 patients uh, who had sepsis, cardiac arrest, required emergency surgery, um, had other critical illness, stroke, trauma, MI. So really included, uh, you know, multiple different diagnoses in these, this critically ill, uh, kind of putting them all together. Um, and what did they see? So uh, as far as the outcome for in-hospital mortality, 
liberal oxygen, 3.7%, conservative oxygen, 3%, uh, with a relative risk of 1.2, and the number needed to harm on that was 143. Uh, for 30-day mortality, with liberal oxygen, it was 6.4%, conservative oxygen, 5.6%, a relative risk of 1.14, and a number needed to harm of 125. And then the third big outcome was mortality at the longest follow-up. Uh, liberal oxygen, 10.5%, conservative oxygen, 9.5%, and the relative risk there was only 1.1, and number needed to harm was 100. Uh, so interestingly, kind of the secondary outcomes, there was no difference in disability, hospital-acquired pneumonia, or uh, length of hospital stay uh, that they found. So overall, I think a pretty good study, good methodology. Overall, you know, pretty high-quality evidence with using just these randomized controlled trials. They tried to eliminate bias with a uh, risk bias tool. Um, and they, you know, tried to pick out the best uh, randomized trials that they could to include here. Uh, there are limitations, they say. There was variation in study settings and variations used for the definition of liberal versus conservative oxygen. And most studies didn't really include what the overall cause uh, specific mortality was. So the precise mechanisms of, of how the oxygen caused harm weren't really known. Mm. And then, so overall, just the author's conclusion was that in acutely ill adults, high quality evidence shows that liberal oxygen therapy increases mortality without improving other patient important outcomes. Supplemental oxygen might become unfavorable above a SAT range of 94 to 96%. These results support the conservative administration of oxygen therapy. And that's a quote right from their conclusion. Mm. Um, so that's that's pretty much what they came up with. So overall, I, I think it was a pretty well done you know, uh, uh, analysis there. Are you dialing? So as a result, are you going to dial down the O2? Yeah, I think if they don't need, if their SAT is, you know, 94 to 96, I don't think I'm going to crank it up for sure. I don't think they're going to, I don't think they need oxygen. Well, yeah, the other question is like, what do you do with the, the person who comes in with having chest pain and you suspect they have ACS, right? And they're satting at 95% already or 96%, right? right? And the dogma the teaching is, well, slap two liters of oxygen on them. Oh, yeah. And then they, their SAT goes up to 100%. So do they really need that two liters of oxygen right there? Well, that to Does me, that make it worse? Yeah. So when <laughs> I looked at this, you if you, if you look at um, table or figure two, right, the mortality outcomes with liberal versus conservative, the study, the weighting shows that the outcome of the study was driven by four uh, articles. One of them was the... Um, the Gerardus article, which looked at MICU patients, so that's medical disease, sick medical patients. Then the other was the Hoffman article that looked at MI patients, and then two smaller ones on stroke. And so they, they're the ones that really, you know, pushed the, uh, the, uh, f the, the outcome to favor slightly, slightly favor less oxygen. And they, the authors do go into uh, some discussion about saying, like, look, we're not saying that this applies to everything, elective surgery, people getting an amputation of an ischemic limb, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In those cases, um, sometimes the uh, a hyperoxia state, may, well, it hasn't been proven whether it's helpful or not. So to me, I thought, I, I thought well, the, the one thing I'm definitely going to take away is that uh, leaving, the, uh, leaving the O2 at six liters so you don't have to, uh, you know, 
uh, intubate the patient might be something you're you're going to do because they're hypoxic, but hyperoxic is uh, of no benefit. So right. you know you're you're going for normal oxygen, and if you look at the studies, especially in sick medical <clears throat> ICU type patients, patients with MI, the case you just talked about, Ed, you know, no point in getting. And 99 is great on a math test. It's not so good for, uh, <laughs> for a pulse ox uh, if you uh, are flooding them with oxygen. To, and then with stroke patients. Yeah. And, and then with everything else, I think we're going to have to take a closer look. I think it repoints up something that we all learned in medical school, that oxygen is a drug. Right. And all drugs, if you give too much of it, just because a little bit of this drug is good, doesn't mean... A whole lot of it is better. Right. Sometimes a whole lot of it can be toxic. I should tell this to the toxicologist, right? Right. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I mean, so that's what Paracelsus said. That everything is a toxin. It's just a question of the dose. Right. right? And so, so it makes sense that that would occur for oxygen. We just think, well, it's air, it's oxygen. It's, uh, right, right. it's different. Well, no, it's not different, actually. Yeah. It's, it actually is a drug, and there are limits to it. Yeah. You wonder whether the mere fact of how pulse oximeters report saturation may have contributed to it, right? And so if, it, if there was like, if the pulse oximeter basically was like green, meaning let's say over 94%, and like yellow, meaning 94 to, I'm making this up, 89, yeah. and then red, then folks would just say, well, as long as it's in the green... But because, you know, you want to get 100. Everybody wants 100%, yeah. right? Yeah. We're all, we're all type better. A personalities. Yeah. We want that 100%. You know, my patient's we? 100% set, you know? I was so. thinking this on the pulse ox, right? So the, the blood pressure, it dings when it's too low and when it's too high. Right. And, you know, the respiratory rate, if it's too low or too high, well, what if the pulse ox started dinging when ah, it got to human be factors, yeah. 99 to 100%? Oh, turn down that oxygen so we get the monitor to stop the ding, you know? Exactly, it, you know, right. So, uh, you know, maybe... Well, the decision-making like really does play into this because, you know, you think you're doing good, you yeah. know, you think you're doing good. And uh, with a number needed to harm of in the hundreds, you know, you're not going to notice it. You're not going to say like, oh, that, that guy, I, you know, right. had a 100% face mask on really didn't do as well as I hope. You know, that'll, that'll, no, that'll escape your attention. But in a whole population, think about, I mean, everybody who comes in via rescue or in an ambulance essentially has oxygen on them. I mean... It's probably not 100%. Right. It's probably more like 80%. But, you know, virtually every sick patient who gets brought yeah. back, you're right. They all yeah. get monitor, IV, right. and O2. I mean, that's what we teach the residents yeah. is the safety net. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, when you put it over that many people, then even a small amount like that, you're going to save some um, mortality. Right. There was a time where you didn't have a pulse oximeter uh, as the uh, fifth vital sign every mm -hmm. time, you know. Um, You'd have to go grab it and drag it around the, the 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 department and measure it on folks, and maybe maybe it's the pulse oximeter that's driving the hyperoxia. Is uh, could I be think, uh, an interesting thought process. Well, um, <clears throat> myth busting on on hyperoxia, uh, you know. So, but the one thing I don't want anybody to take away is that. You know, we're not talking about hypoxia. Like, it, conservative oxygen therapy, it does not mean like, oh, 90% is fine. Like, right. you still need to get them up there. But I think we're, we're thinking like 96 is roughly right yeah, in yeah. that zone. Yeah, if, yeah. You're, if you're 94 to 96, I think you're probably okay. You're oxygenated. Yeah. 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 Okay. Very cool. All right. How about that tread, that that seizure patient that came in with the big old knot on there? Yeah. Head? So are we going to do a CAT scan on this guy or not? Well... We got an article that may help us with this a little bit. So this was by Solinsky et al. in Epilepsia uh, from 2018. It's called Emergency Department Neuroimaging for Epileptic Seizures. And this was from um, the Oregon 
Health and Science University and the VA at Portland. And so they wanted to look at the frequency and yield of neuroimaging in people who had known seizure disorders who came to the ER with a recurrent or non-index seizure, and then determine what clinical factors influenced their decision to use neuroimaging. So they did a retrospective chart review of the both hospitals. They include people, or they excluded, I should say, people who had an index seizure, i.e. their first seizure, or if they had a non-index seizure that the last seizure occurred more than five years ago because the thought is if you haven't had a seizure in five years and you have another one, you probably need to work that, possibly need to work that up as a new onset seizure. And if you had a neuroimaging in another hospital and they transferred you, they didn't include those. And they excluded things like psychogenic seizures and syncope and stuff like that. Um, and they mainly looked at CTs, although they did include some MRIs in these people. So what are their results? So after exclusions, there were a total of 822 visits that they looked at. There were 477 were at Oregon Health and um, uh, 345 were at the VA. Mm. Um, table one shows the characteristics of the study population. There were some slight differences. Um, the people at the VA, as you might expect, were a little bit older. Um, the people at the VA were more likely to be male, 93%, versus Oregon was 56%, again, as you might suspect. Um, Oregon had a little bit more head trauma than the VA did. They had 15% versus 10%, and the VA had a little bit more admissions. They had 33% over 15%. So they did neuroimaging, was obtained in a total of 381 patients, which was a combined rate of 46%. There was some difference between the two hospitals, but actually when they corrected it for age, that difference was no longer significant. Okay. So we won't even talk about that. Gotcha. Again, most of their patients had CT scans, um, 94%. And they then would go into how they classified them. You know, some of them were probably epileptogenic. Some of them were possibly epileptogenic. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that is all that important in looking at that. Interestingly, most of the patients, they said around 90% or so, had neuroimaging, the patients who had neuroimaging had previous results in the electronic medical record. Mm. So that, and a lot of them they said were within a year or so. So you actually could have went back in the record and looked up a CAT scan if you were really curious. So probably the most important part about this is when did the neuroimaging lead to an acute change in management? And that was five patients at Oregon which was 2.7% of their group, and six patients at the VA, which was 3.1% of their group. So the combined yield was 2.9%, so uh, we'll say 3% mm -hmm. of their patients had a change in management. Interestingly, three of the patients had false positive findings. So that was the, you know, there's a little ditzel in the CAT scan. We're not right. sure what it is. Yeah. So they get admitted, they get another thing, MRI or something sure. done, and they find it was another. So if you exclude those, then the positives drop to basically 2.1%, so, so 2%. Um, so they didn't have a real big yield with these patients. So they went and looked and said, so what clinical factors uh, can we look at? So they basically came up with three things. If you had some acute head injury, right. and they note that these were all mild head injuries. So as we were talking earlier, this is probably the seizure guy who bumped his head and has got a little knot there. Um, right. Prolonged alteration of consciousness or focal abnormality on neurologic exam. If you didn't have any of those things, the yield fell to only 1%. 
And they said after they excluded the false positives, it was actually zero. So I thought this was an interesting study. I mean, it, it's got some limitations. Obviously, it's, it's a local study. It was only two hospitals in Oregon. It's retrospective. They, let's face it, they only had 11 patients who had an acute change in management. The thing that got me about this when I looked at it is that that rate of 46% CAT scans and recurrent seizures, I find to be really high. Because I, I don't do CAT scans in like, you know, two out of every five seizure yeah. patients that yeah. come in. Um, I would have liked to have seen whether there was a provider difference, you know, whether Dr. A, who uh, worked, you know, all of this, you know, like weekend shifts or some some provider difference where one doctor was doing, oh, you know, that's automatic seizure with a bump on your head, you're getting a head CT. Um, and then maybe Dr. B did none, you yeah. know, and, what, and, and whatnot. Um well, you know, the old saying is that alcoholics uh, uh, exist to fool emergency medicine physicians. Yes. And so, you know, everybody has gives them a wide berth because they, they hide occult disease. But uh, I, do, I do think that it, a paper comes along every once in a while and, and sort of proves what you already do as being safe. Right. And that's what I really enjoyed about this. Yes. I was like, oh, I don't CAT scan that many folks. So that, that's good. I'm, right. I'm glad I yes. have some evidence for that. Right. Now, yeah. So if they have a bump on their head, yeah, maybe you should think about it. If they have yeah. a focal neurologic exam, sure. And if they don't wake up when you expect them to, I don't know how long that exactly is, but we all know it's like you're like, that seizure patient, is he, is he still, why is he still unconscious? Right. You know, all right, maybe we need to send labs on him and get, right. and get a CAT scan on him. Did yeah. any of these uh, new findings of bleedings or subdural require um, the, an operation or surgical intervention? They didn't, they didn't really address that. Okay. They just addressed it from the standpoint of, you know, what were they doing different in the emergency department? Gotcha. So. Yeah. And yeah, when you when you look at some of these people where it did change the care, they give you kind of the list of patients. You know, a couple of them had uh, cancer. You know, brain tumor, and yeah. then one had a, you know a prior known angioma. Um, so there, there are ones that are almost kind of obvious where you would obviously probably CAT scan them. Right, I think in. so. Yeah, um, I mean. Yeah, and a patient with uh, you know generalized convulsions and and is non-compliant on their meds and has yet another seizure. I right. You know. I, I don't. I don't scan those. I don't yeah. even do any labs on them in general. Right. I mean, you know. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them are, come in with trauma because you know you seize, you fall, you hit your head a lot of times right. too. So they usually do get a scan. You know, right. They have head trauma. So. Um, yeah, it wasn't all that surprising. Like, yeah, but it just reinforced what we already do. So I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I was a little surprised. I didn't know. You know, it. I was surprised that the VA there was more. There were more scans done than at the uh, the you know the regular uh, community hospital. Um, I always thought the VA would be kind of more economical with their scans, you know. But <laughs> so I was, I was a little just 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 by the discrepancy well, the hand, there. But I, you know, I and they know. were admitted more often. Yeah. 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 On the other hand, they have an older patient population yeah, older though too, and, and they they the, showed that that was one of the sort right. of you know risk Fair, factors yeah. for being Fair scanned. Point. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but yeah, it was, it, yeah. We don't need to do that much with recurrent seizure patients. Well, ASAP has the Choosing Wisely uh, campaign, and one of them is reducing unnecessary head CTs. And it doesn't specifically talk about seizures per se and whatnot, but what it does say is that you should use guidelines to uh, decide who you're going to image and who you're not going to image. And I think some of the little tidbits here, they don't quite rise to the level of a, you know, um, a Canadian head CT rule or something like that, but they're good they're, they're good guidance for when you're thinking about skipping that uh, head CT, as we often do in a patient with yeah. um, uh, what we think is non-index epilepsy uh, event. 
Well, so if we go back to our original dilemma, we're going to go back to room one, turn the oxygen down. Right. We're going to start some antibiotics. We'll probably start some antibiotics. And knowing that uh, if it's mild appendicitis, it doesn't matter whether they get their uh, surgery right away or later or never. Uh, we'll stop worrying about that. And, uh, and don't order the head CT. We're not going to order a head CT. See if he wakes up first. Wow, this shift got 10 times easier because we got the literature. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again. Uh, a great uh, podcast here on EM Toxcast, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. See ya.